0: Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. Before we get started, I have an invitation for you. I'd love to invite you to turn your phones off. (laughs) I think I had six different people before Bible study this morning tell me, tell them to turn their phones off. Okay, okay, okay. So, and silence them or whatever you want. Um, just, Just so we're all clear, there's that little toggle... That's on the side of your phone, and you can, yeah, and it just won't make noise. It's great. Brilliant. Apple brilliant. Just in case, someone the other day said something about that, and I said, well, you know, you just click it, and then it won't ring? Yeah. Yeah. Will wonders never cease, you know? All right, after we have all silenced our phones... (laughs) We will get started. So this week, instead of me doing just extemporaneous prayer, um, although I will say we should pull, hey, will you pull that door with you on the way up? On the way in, thank you. Um, I will say that I saw the funniest little meme, which is one of those things where it's a still picture with words that are written over it that you see online. Um, And I wish I had it to show you on the screen But it was two images. The top was just this awful, awful winter scene, right? I mean, someone's shoveling and it's just ice everywhere and the car is covered and all that sort of stuff. And it says at the top, what most people do with salt in the winter. Then at the bottom was this beautiful picture of a margarita with salt rim. (laughs) And it says, what Texans do with salt in the winter. And I thought, That is why we live here. But we do want to keep in our prayers all the people who are living where you shouldn't live. Um, I'm very sorry. I remember when I was in college, we went to a grocery store. I was in grad school, actually. I went to a grocery store with a friend, and we went to put the groceries in the trunk of her car, and she had blankets folded up in the corner of her trunk, which to a Floridian means you went to the beach or you had a picnic. That's what you use a blanket for. And so I said... Where'd you have a picnic? And she said, what? And I said, we have blankets in your trunk. And she said, oh no, that's in case I break down in the winter that I won't freeze to death because she's from Chicago. Excuse me. Why do you live somewhere where you'll die just from being outside? I'm not entirely sure how that makes any sense. But what was it in Minneapolis today? The wind chill this morning was negative 52. What? That's not even a real temperature. No. I, to me, once it goes below zero, what difference does it make? I mean, negative 52. Crazy. All right, so we will say a prayer for those unfortunate souls. But this week, we are doing chapter 16 of Acts. And chapter 16 has the mention of one of our saints in our church, Lydia. Lydia. So the Episcopal church along with Romans and Orthodox and Lutherans recognize Lydia who we will talk about in this chapter as a minor saint of the church. In our tradition, we have major feast days with major saint days. So that's people like Peter and Paul, Saint Michael and all angels. Those are major feast days. Then there are what we call lesser feast days with the minor saints. And Lydia is considered one of those minor saints, and her feast day was just three days ago. And so I thought it was very apropos, if we're learning about her in chapter 16, that we actually open with the collect that is used on her feast day. And so one thing I want to make note of, there are three saints collected together on that one day on January 27th. Lydia is the first. Then there is one referred to as Dorcas, which is very unfortunate, um, but she in, in Hebrew is Tabitha. And so we see Tabitha mentioned a few chapters ago in Acts chapter 9. The third person is Phoebe, and Phoebe is mentioned in Romans. So all three of these women were important in the missionary journeys and the evangelism of Paul and the spread of Christianity in the first century. And so they're all three remembered on the same day, and we remember them on January 27th. So let's open in prayer by using their collect. Let us pray. Filled with your Holy Spirit, gracious God, your earliest disciples served you with the gifts each had been given Lydia in business and stewardship, Dorcas or Tabitha in a life of charity, and Phoebe as a deacon who served many. Inspire us today to build up your church with our gifts in hospitality, charity, and bold witness to the gospel of Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We are into chapter 16. And chapter 16, I want to make sure we note, is really the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. Oh, jeez. Me, whatever. Paul's second missionary journey. We talked about how Paul had three-ish missionary journeys. Three missionary journeys where Paul left, did some traveling, and then returned. Sometimes people call his trip from... Israel Jerusalem to Rome where he will ultimately die as his fourth missionary journey Because he was writing lots of letters and meeting with different disciples along the way kind of Um, So at least three maybe four and this is his second missionary journey that technically kicked off With his big fight with barnabas at the end of chapter 15. So there are Maybe two verses of chapter 15 that you could count as the beginning of his second missionary journey, but he really actually gets moving and makes visits beginning in chapter 16. And we'll do this for a few chapters for his second missionary journey. So first section of chapter 16, we have Timothy joins the crew. Section two is the conversion of Lydia. Then section three, we have Paul and Silas in prison and then out of prison. So Paul and Silas, are you kidding me? I can't, okay, Paul and Silas in prison. Number three, the third part of this chapter is really the big meaty stuff. So we're going to spend a little less time on uh, parts one and two before we get to part three. So as we said, this is the beginning of the second missionary journey. And Paul leaves Barnabas after their big fight Silas joins Paul, and as we noted last week, Silas and Paul are both Roman citizens That becomes important in this chapter It will be important a few times, but the first time it's really important is in this chapter So they leave where they were, which was functionally North Jerusalem near Syria And they begin traveling back through what is today Turkey I believe if you have and he writes commentary with you. There are some nice maps about where he goes. Um, If you don't, there should be, most Bibles will have a map that tracks Paul's missionary journeys. It won't be just the second one, but you can see the lines where the first, second, and third go. Functionally speaking, we need to imagine in our minds the country of Turkey, right? So it kind of sticks out going west from Asia Minor, toward Greece. The extreme western coast of Turkey is on the Aegean Sea. If you go directly across the Aegean Sea, you get to Greece. But if you take the land route from Turkey to Greece, you go through Macedonia. We need to basically know Turkey, Macedonia, and Greece for this chapter. If you can't picture that in your mind, try and find a map Somewhere We should know about the Aegean Sea because if we ever did any of our Greek mythology in school, right? The Odyssey, the Iliad, and all that stuff. They're pretty much always sailing through the Aegean Sea at some point point. And so that's that sea where all those little Grecian islands sort of touch All right, so we need to know Turkey, Macedonia, and Greece Paul begins by going up into central Turkey and in central Turkey He visits Derbe and Lystra When he gets to Lystra, which is basically south-central Turkey, he meets a good God-following man named Timothy. Timothy is a good Jew who has started following Jesus. He has heard about the gospel, he wants to follow Jesus, and not only does he want to follow Jesus, but he's good at speaking and wants to join Paul and Silas on their mission. What Paul does when he gets when he wants to uh, when Timothy wants to join him is Paul takes Timothy to be circumcised because his father was Greek and Presumably he had not been circumcised. What is interesting about this twofold. The first is What just happened in chapter 15? The Jerusalem Council and what was all that mess about? They argued amongst themselves if you needed to be Jewish in order to follow Jesus. And they decided definitively, no, you don't have to be. Paul already knows this. And yet here's a man who wants to help him spread the Christian gospel around. And he is culturally Jewish. Mothers pass on the Jewish identity to their children for really one simple reason. You are not always sure about paternity, but you are sure about maternity. All right, that baby just came from you. Okay, you cannot deny that. So if the mother's Jewish, then the children are Jewish, culturally, racially, whatever you want to say about that. It's not really race. It's more just culture, ethnicity. So Timothy was Jewish, but his father was Greek. And so somehow Timothy was not really raised Jewish. This gets back to something we've touched on a few times. We all know people who say they're Jewish, never do anything religiously Jewish, but they would tell you they're Jewish because Jew, being Jewish has double meaning. You aren't, well, Jewishness can be ethnic or religious or both. You never are quite sure how someone's using the term I would say that most of Christian history is such that being Christian is not cultural or ethnic. I think we've actually kind of shifted. I think that today being Christian is actually, can be cultural or religious or both. There are plenty of people I know, as I'm sure you do, who say they're Christian and they mean that with good intention, but no, they're not. Not in a religious sense. I mean, they might have a Christmas tree and they may put a little manger scene out in their house because it's pretty and it's part of their Christmas decorations Maybe they even go to church once a year at Christmas or Easter Maybe even both maybe but actually religiously Christian and some no But they identify with all of the kind of look of Christianity because it's more or less culturally acceptable to do that stuff I think we are now at the point where kind of like being Jewish Not quite, but in a similar sense lots of people are Christian But that doesn't really mean anything about religion. It's just more about culture. So Timothy ethnically Jewish But has not been raised within the Jewish religion But somehow he's figured out the gospel and he's a really good guy and obviously Paul wants him to be a part of this work Why then does he need to be circumcised? So, first question is, does Paul somehow not believe in the Jerusalem Council decision? We see much later that Paul is all in for that. He has no problem with anyone who is not Jewish. They can follow Jesus, no problem. Okay, how about Timothy? Here's what most people think. It is very different to follow Jesus as a Christian than it is to evangelize non-Christians to become Christian. In essence, what Paul is doing here is establishing a double standard of ministers, in a way. There are two dynamics going on here. One is ministers, missionaries, evangelists, you name it, are held to a higher standard you've got to actually be as good a representative of whatever it is you are preaching as you can be in order to then bring in more people with you. I would say that there are a lot of, most churches, most religious groups do have that kind of implied double standard. I know that when I was going through seminary, one of the things that we would discuss often is Should priests be held to a higher standard than just Episcopalian lay ministers and Most of my classmates said no I always said yes because there is a I think as a christian person You're forgiven anything Right god's grace is just it period nothing can separate you from god, but Within roles in a community you can lose authority And if something happens where you do undermine your own authority, it's gone. And if it's gone, you as a Christian can be redeemed and reconciled. But in that role, you've sort of lost the capacity or the authority to do whatever you were doing in that role. doesn't mean you're a bad person, but now your ministry shifts. And that makes sense to me. I think Paul in essence lives into that same idea. But here's perhaps the more functional reason. How did Paul plant churches? Shows up in a city, goes to the synagogue, worships with the Jews, and when he has the chance to teach, gets up and teach about the fulfillment of the Messianic promise in Jesus. That is the technique. Not every single time. We'll see in Philippi, when he goes to Philippi in this chapter, that's not what they do. But almost every single time Paul plants a church, they show up and own their Jewishness and own their Jewish authority to then explain how the prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus. Timothy cannot do that if Timothy is not fully immersed as a Jew. So then the question becomes, how would they know (laughs) <laughs> right, so uh, the, we don't know. Um, most scholars end up landing on at this point in time there were public baths, right? You just, men and women kind of went to these centralized public baths and, and then you know. That's about it. Um, some people have argued that If Paul walks in, Paul already had a uh, charism that would have preceded him. And if he simply said, Timothy's a good Jew, then everyone sitting there would just say, well, then he is, because Paul said so. Paul's not gonna lie to us. So why go through the physical stuff? I think Paul, in his heart, knew that to be a good Jew, so to speak, you had to go through all the different ritualisms that were involved with a Jew, which included circumcision and the ritual with the moil. And Timothy just needed to do it in order to be valid. Which is so, it's a bummer for Timothy. Um, So that is in essence the first section. Any questions or thoughts about that? I thought for sure you were going to have some question about all that. Okay, (laughs) great. Oh, Madeline, yes. (laughs) No. Uh, The question is, is this where denomination started? Uh, No, because way before this, I mean, look at the Jews. The Jews already had multiple branches of theological thought. Um, At least we know of three that are somehow represented in the Bible. We know two of them immediately, right? Pharisees and Sadducees. Those two groups were effectively denominations of Judaism. Uh, They wouldn't really use that terminology, but whether you call yourself, you know, I mean, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. I mean, they really were denominations, even if they didn't claim that term. Um, The third one would be the Essenes. And we don't hear about them explicitly in, in the New Testament, except it is almost without doubt that John the Baptist was an Essene Jew. And the Essenes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were part of the social-religious structure of authority within Jerusalem. The Essenes were more aesthetic, breakaway group that went out to the Dead Sea. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were produced and maintained by that sect of Judaism. Sect is typically what people use as a term, not denomination. Pretty I mean effectively, it's the same difference. And so the idea that you might be under a big umbrella, but practice differently was certainly not unknown When it comes to Christian denominations Functionally communication is Not as easy certainly not as easy as today But it wasn't always super easy for the Christians in the first couple centuries because they were not legal Once they become legal under Constantine, there's a good hundred years where they're able to use all of the great Roman systems of communication. So there is a decent amount of unity around what it means to be Christian. We know that because of the great church councils, the first being the Council of Nicaea in 328. In 328, all the leaders from all these random churches that Paul and others have started come together in the city of Nicaea And they begin asking the question, what does it mean to be Christian? What we get out of that council is the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed just functionally says, who is the Father, who's the Son, who's the Holy Spirit? What is this Trinity? It, It doesn't make sense. Because we don't have three gods, we have one, but we have three manifestations of God that are all fully divine. And they figure out how that works, and we get the creed but it's the first of multiple church councils for about 125 years that define things like Mary's virginity. Was she a Christ bearer or a God bearer? Which is not, I mean, it's all kinds of details that we probably just take for granted because they are cornerstone ideas of what it means to be Christian. But that all falls apart when Rome is sacked in 470. So when Rome gets destroyed by sort of the Northern Europeans, the Germans, the Germanic peoples more or less, when Rome falls, all of that good communication falls apart. So for about 500 years, you could really only communicate with the people who were geographically near enough to you to talk or meet up and that sort of stuff, which is where we get the rise of all the different Orthodox churches. So you've got Orthodox churches that coalesce around a geographic region. That comes to a head around the time when the Crusades pop up in the early 11th century and create a schism. And that's where we get in 1054, that's the great schism east and west. You get the Roman church off to the west and the Orthodox churches in the East. Up until that point, denominations are not defined and official. But in 1054, that actually marks when they, there is an official split in the Christian church. For what? 60 BC for what? Oh, we're after, so it's 60 AD. Yes, yeah. So at this point, everyone's just following Jesus. Right, and they're doing their best and it's within context. And why we have all of the letters from Paul is because everyone within their own context has questions about what it means to be Christian. So if you're in Philippi versus um, Corinth versus Ephesus versus Antioch, your general world experience can be very different. And so as these different churches try to figure out how to follow Jesus best, they have questions. What about this and what about that? And they'll write to Paul and Paul will write them back. And the letters that survive, Ephesians, Romans, Philippians, Galatians, all those letters, get compiled and too often taken out of context. That's the issue with Paul, is that he wrote to answer a specific question by a specific group of people who lived in a specific place. It is very risky for us to take any little line that he says to those people in those letters and apply it globally to every Christian everywhere. That's risky. It doesn't mean it's not a good attempt at understanding things, but we always have to keep in mind, Paul almost certainly had no concept that his letters would be used as people use them today. No concept of that. Um, th- that, uh, th- no. And so when we do that, we always have to make sure that there's a consistency between what we see in the Gospels and then what Paul says to a specific group of people because we know, based on what he does in Acts, Paul is a pragmatist. Paul wants people to follow Jesus. Paul is less concerned with your theology and much more concerned with what you do and how you live. And so he will start a church however he can with whomever is there because that's better than nothing. So when he writes to a church and says, consider these rules to guide you, he does not intend for those rules to be applied to every single church everywhere because he just wants them to continue to get better and better that group in that place. So whenever your friends or anybody says, we don't do X because Paul said Y, I want you to be very confident and clear. Paul did say that. He did write that. But he wrote it in a very, very specific way. Does not mean that it is untrue. But if, it, if we 2,000 years later See that whatever Paul wrote Limits what Jesus taught That's not for us And that's important Good question Yes What Paul applied to one group Sure Okay so the question is Example of what Paul may Apply to one group and not another if you look at if you look at the letters that Paul wrote that we still have, which by the way is not a lot. And of the ones we have, traditionally 14 are believed to have been written by Paul. Now we are certain that only 7 were. So it's not that many of our epistles were written by Paul. 7 is enough to say what I'm going to say. Each community existed on a sliding scale of Jewishness. And that's perhaps the first and most important idea to understand. Some communities like say the church in Antioch was very Jewish and then had Gentiles. Other communities like we will see in chapter 16 with Philippi had virtually no Jews. And so they were almost entirely Gentile converts. When Paul writes to those different churches and pull out someone else like uh, a better example would be Galatians because Galatians had a lot of Jews Um, When Paul writes in Galatians Paul's writing to a majority Jewish audience trying to figure out what's different about being Jewish and being Jewish with a Messiah so that context is very different than when he writes to Philippians, in Philippians to Philippi, where they're not concerned about Judaism. They, that doesn't even matter, that doesn't register because they're not Jewish. They're all Gentiles. So what a lot of times people love, I mean, if I were to say to you, those of you who even have an answer to this question, what's your favorite epistle? My guess is if we were to do a little survey in here, most people would have Philippians at the top of their list because Philippians makes sense to us. We are not Jewish, we are just Christian. And Paul writes Philippians in a way that makes great sense to people who were never Jewish, who were just only ever Christian. It's poetic and it's beautiful and it's broad and it's nothing really legal, it's it's great. Some of the letters though get pretty legal because Paul's specifically writing to Jews who are trying to figure out this Jesus stuff Where we see this rubber hits the road Is all social con- context So One of the things like we did here With opening um, Opening with the colic that I did Phoebe who m- Makes a big impact In the letter to the Romans Is called a deacon And leader of the church How did we ever get to where women can't do that? If right there, Paul, our big evangelist, has tapped a woman to lead what is arguably the most important church at that time, the one in Rome, because most of the rest of the letters he wrote in their context did not lift women up. And so it was easy to say, well, there might be one point for the women, but there are 12 points against the women. Does that actually mean Paul intended to undermine women's leadership? No, Paul was writing in context. And so it took a whole lot of time, but we finally figured out that, oh my gosh, women can be ordained leaders you know, shock of whatever. So that is an example of taking Paul's letters literally without taking them in context, especially when he has, it's not even like someone, we. it's not even like the church made the argument, well, that was just the way it was and women didn't take leadership roles. No, Phoebe is right there. It's not absent. It is very present. It's just not quite enough to out counterbalance all of the anti-women stuff in the other letters. That's the easiest example that I think we will all agree with. We won't do some of the others. <laughs> so, does that sound good? Okay. Other questions? Right on. Let's move on to Lydia. As we shift into the next section, we see that Timothy has joined Paul and Silas, And they go off toward western Turkey. So they've come north and west into Turkey. And now they are continuing west in Turkey. I'm going to go this way. West in Turkey toward Greece or toward the Aegean Sea. They get all the way to the city of Troas. And Troas is where they leave to sail to Macedonia. So let's take a look at this story in verse 11. And we'll just read a few verses here. Oh, before we do that, I want to make a quick note. Up to this point in Acts, all the way through chapter 16, verse 10, this story has been written from an omniscient perspective, right? Paul did this, Peter did this, Philip did this, and on and on and on. Chapter 16, verse 11 we switch to first person. We set sail from Troas. Okay, so before we get into this, ah, who's the we? So who wrote Acts? Luke. Who was Luke likely? A student, an apostle of Paul. Most scholars think what is happening here is Luke has joined them. And for this little bit, Luke's actually with them. So Luke's been telling a story about what these other people did, but once he jumps on, literally gets on the boat with Paul, he's saying, we did this. And so Luke is a part of the group here that goes to Philippi, so as he writes this part of the story, he's saying, we. Now he'll pivot back. At the end of chapter 16, he's gone off doing something else, and so as he continues to tell the story, he says, Paul goes and does... But for this little section and there'll be another one in a few chapters we get this first person we because luke's with them okay just want to make sure that was clear so they are leaving turkey and going to macedonia so again macedonia is the land path to greece instead of sailing straight across the aegean sea so verse 11 we set sail from troas to philippi which is a leading city of the district of macedonia and a roman colony we remained in this city for some days verse 13 on the sabbath day we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there a certain woman named lydia a worshiper of god was listening to us she was from the city of Thratira and a dealer in purple cloth The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. What is happening in this scene is different than what we've seen up to this point. Typically, Paul shows up, goes to synagogue, and preaches. No synagogue in Philippi. Philippi is one of those fully Roman cities It is a big merchant area. There are lots of people who trade because again it's the land path from say Italy, Greece over into Turkey and Asia Minor. So if you're not sailing across the Mediterranean, you're going through Philippi. Philippi is also a big port city. So if you even if you are sailing, Philippi is one of those great spots where you can stop and refuel and get food and all the other stuff as you continue on either east or west So Philippi is wealthy Philippi is not an old city Philippi is fully Roman No synagogue Very few Jews if any Certainly there would have been have to have been some Jews but not a critical mass So Paul doesn't have a synagogue to go to and preach So Paul goes down by the river where I guess people were praying, including Lydia, and begins to tell them this story. Lydia's heart is opened up. She is baptized as is her household, and she invites them to stay, which is not always how Paul does stuff. But Lydia, it says, Lydia prevailed upon us. So, in essence, Lydia, Lydia was a strong woman. Lydia is, as is described here a merchant herself. Throtira was a place that historically had a very specific color cloth. It was a deep purple, like a dark red purple color. And I don't know any more about how that was produced there or whatever that was, but it was known for a particular kind of cloth. And Lydia apparently is perhaps one of the leaders of the cloth sales in Philippi. So she was almost certainly wealthy and had authority. She had her own home, that's not every person, and she must have been able to just convince them to stay. They end up staying for a while, and Philippi, because of Lydia, becomes a major community of Christians for, the, for a few centuries because she, in essence, funded it. So Lydia becomes a benefactor, she uses her home, she does all that kind of stuff to make it a really big deal, and that all starts here. That's, functionally, that's about all that's happening here, but it's important to note because Philippi was an important church. Any questions about that before we get on to, to the later stuff? All right, so here's the good stuff. Well, fun stuff. So, Paul and Silas, as I said, stay in Philippi, a little unusual. So they begin to figure out how to live life. They're not quite so transient as they have been in other cities. And one of the things they start to do is they start to go to and from prayer. As they go to and from prayer, they're meeting and maybe getting to know the regulars in the town. What is one human truth? (laughs) People will defend their money. And that's important because what Paul does here in the next few verses is undercuts someone's livelihood. That does not go over well. So this is just good enough to read. So we're just gonna read it and it's not all that complicated. It involves a slave girl who divines and we'll talk about that when i'm finished reading So we're going to read a few verses starting in verse 16 One day as we so again luke silas paul as we were going to the place of prayer We met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination And brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling While she followed Paul and us she would cry out these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaim to you a way of salvation She kept doing this for many days But Paul very much annoyed Turned and said to the spirit. I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out that very hour so pause divination in the ancient world I mean, it still happens now. People who have some capacity to make people believe they know the future can make some money. It's human nature, we wanna know what's gonna happen. right? We want to know how to prepare, we want to know if something bad's gonna happen or something's good gonna happen. And we are naturally inclined to believe people who tell us stuff we wanna hear. And by want to hear, that can be bad news too. There are plenty of people you know who seem to thrive on bad news, right? When things are going well, they'll find something that's going wrong, right? And so whether it's needing good news or wanting bad news, people who claim that authority in some way are able to make some money. Functionally, what's happening here is there's some slave girl that's able to, that has convinced people she can do this stuff. Can she, can't she, I don't know, but she has a spirit in her kind of weird. And Paul casts that spirit out. The word that is used in this passage is not the same word that's used when they talk about demons. So it's not technically the same thing as a demonic possession. It's a spirit, different word. I could not quite figure out what to tell you about this. I just want to make the note that There's a spirit at work here, I suppose, because there is a physical change in this girl once Paul commands the spirit to leave her. The point of the story is, Paul gets annoyed, which is funny, and then casts out the spirit, which means she can no longer tell the future. I mean, that's the story Luke is telling us. And because she can no longer tell the future, the people who own this girl stop making money. People will defend their money. So, this is not going to turn out well. So, let's keep going. Verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet In the stocks. So there is something physically happening here. They're getting thrown into prison, but I think the bigger issue that we see in this story is when Paul does what he should as a witness to the truth of God and Christ, he gets thrown into prison. For us, although knowing the story of the prison is is good to know, I want us to go higher than that and to say we are often put in situations where we could say something that is faithful and true that will make the people around us uncomfortable or angry. And we almost always don't say it. We don't like to make people uncomfortable. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We like to be liked. We don't want someone to feel bad because we did something, and on and on and on. You fill in the blank, but it is not hard, I would say for most of us, to recall at least once, if not lots and lots and lots of times, where you left a moment and you thought, I really should have said something about that, but you didn't, and i do the same thing, because, eh, why cause conflict? Why hurt a relationship? Maybe you don't really like the person enough. I mean, how many times does that happen, right? I'll be in a situation where I think I really need to say something, but it's not worth it. Like, I really don't like that person enough. Um, And we should love everybody. I mean, I get it. But you all are probably better than I am. But there are plenty of times I think it's just not worth the hassle. Um, Who is this person, I don't know. And unless it satisfies my my sort of deep desire to be contrary, Which I just, I really kind of, if someone deserves it, then I'm really happy to make them uncomfortable. But most of the time, it's just something that's small, right? Not going to necessarily change the world. And who are we in this one instance to perhaps impact someone's behavior in their life? That's a big ask. But what we're seeing here is that Paul does not shy away from... A moment when he can bear witness to God's power and when he does the world comes after him that's important for us because being a disciple of Jesus is not easy or comfortable or convenient no matter how much we want it to be and believe me I know that you want it to be you tell me and so we should feel a little challenge about what it means to claim truth even though it is uncomfortable or inconvenient or might actually hurt someone's feelings. I want to say that, then I also want to pull out being judgmental and hurtful. I think intention matters a lot. I don't think it's enough to define whether we do something that does hurt someone's feelings as we intended to be hurtful. I think there is a little bit of a difference, but we've got to be, I think, wise enough to figure out the nuance around intention. If you hurt someone, you did. Intended or not, you did. But judgmentalism is a very different thing. And I think a lot of times Christian groups can become very self-righteous Which produces judgment Which makes them quite hateful That we have to be careful of Paul is not being hateful here. He's not really judging condemning nothing He's just simply seeing someone trapped. I mean, she's described as a slave girl And she's described as a spirit controlling her She is trapped, and Paul can help her get free. Now, that freedom has its cost, worldly cost, but the spiritual reality of that moment is quite profound. We all have, in our own ways, opportunities to help people get unstuck or to get free. Doesn't mean it will work, but perhaps we should try. And that can be, that can push us out of our comfort zone. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the ask this week is to do something uncomfortable. That was, I think, my recent Katie Trail article was do something uncomfortable, yes. Okay. So, what should mean? Yeah. Yeah. So the question or comment or whatever, Betsy, is what really is the problem here? Because She wasn't really saying a bad thing. And (laughs) look at what she said. I mean, case in point. She says, these men, where is it, where is it, where is it? These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaimed you a way of salvation. Yeah. Correct. Right? I mean, that that is what they are. What then is the problem? Well, I think we could say it twofold. Paul was annoyed. Okay. That's a little cheap but maybe Paul was just tired of her. Um, You know, I mean, if you imagine you're walking down the same path each day going to pray and there's this chick like yelling at you, that's not, right, that's not gonna make you happy. Um, I think that's a little cheap. I like the idea that Paul understood that she was stuck and knew he had the capacity To free her Uh, Why then didn't he at first Right? She's been yelling at them Enough times for Paul to be annoyed So he obviously didn't take the opportunity the first time Or second or third or however many times they walked past It wasn't until he was annoyed That he sees the opportunity Well, Paul's not perfect And he makes mistakes too Remember that whenever someone quotes a verse from some letter he wrote, like he's the everything. So Paul is not perfect like us. So to me, there's some grace in that because it's too easy for us to beat ourselves up over a missed opportunity. Don't. Just seize the next one. There are so many that come along in our lives. Don't worry, you miss one. You will miss most. We will miss most. But don't miss all grab some of them and even when they don't work out this is not going to really work out in the short term <laughs> we're going to look at the imprisonment i mean they were just flogged with rods and chained in the innermost cell in the prison well i'm saying that's not working out just then ultimately it works out but when you do something right and good for the gospel don't expect cheers and applause the gospel is not easy, it is not pretty, nice, comfy, smooth, none of it. Jesus is not nice. Jesus is hard and challenging, but it's worthwhile. It Doesn't mean right now, and by right now, it may not be a few days, it may be a few years. It could be really rough and hard, but ultimately, it's worthwhile. Because ultimately, you're part of God's ark of justice and salvation. Okay, we gotta keep moving. They're in prison. There is a giant earthquake, and the earthquake frees all of the prisoners. So, Paul and Silas are praying and singing in prison. You imagine, like the other prisoners, I think, like, shut up. Um, (laughs) But they're praying and singing. And the other prisoners are listening. So look at verse 26. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. Now they don't mind the praying and the singing, do they? When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, this is really important, the jailer drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. It goes on to say that he did, and was baptized. This is a really great moment, because we've seen prisons broken open before, right? Remember the angel with Peter back in Jerusalem. So that alone is not the new thing. They are freed, yet they don't leave. And when the jailer wakes up, he looks to kill himself. Why? Well, because he would have been executed had he let the prisoners go, right? So he was just going to do it. Paul provides him with this amazing grace and points to what is the grace of God. And the jailer's overwhelmed by this and believes because of it. And so we're gonna jump, keep going, because what comes next, I think, is a really great moment. So the next morning, Paul and Silas and the others remain in prison. Now the doors are open. They are not chained, but they stay. And the magistrates come to release them quietly. But Paul demands that something public happen So look at verse 37. Paul replied to the magistrates, They, them, the magistrates, have beaten us in public, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And now they are going to discharge us in secret? Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. Verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. Big question in this moment. We know they're Roman citizens, and we have sort of, I've sort of implied, and we will get to this more clearly in a few chapters. Being a Roman citizen sets you up to have benefits, social, political benefits, that non-Roman citizens don't get. So yes, there's a fear here that they are Roman citizens, that they might get in trouble, because if you mistreat a Roman, Rome comes to defend their citizens. That you don't want. It's sort of like as a US citizen traveling abroad, many countries where others may not feel safe, we are almost certainly safe because the US government will come and get you if US citizens are hurt. So, in this moment, I think for me the big question is how do we use our civic and political authority in conjunction with our lives of faith? We have inherited a Belief system that has convinced us that a separation of church and state is good. And we have no time to debate whether that's good or not. It has mostly throughout our history the last 2,000 years not been the case. It has been the case that the church and the state are very much intertwined, often the same thing. In this country we live into this idea of a separation of church and state Which I think at the beginning in its concept Was quite effective and good Where we've gotten now Is this conviction of separation that is so Certain That we often don't use Our social and political capital To help Do anything that would sniff of church efforts? Should we? Everyone in this room has a whole lot of that kind of capital. And how many of us really do in our own personal lives separate this is my faith and this is my role in the world? And you're the same person, but you would never think to use your worldly authority to perhaps push your personal faith? Should we? At this moment, Paul and Silas are doing just that. When they claim being a Roman citizen, they're not claiming being a Roman to save themselves. No, they could have walked out at any point that night. They claim their Roman citizenship in order to shame the worldly power because they claimed their spiritual authority. That is an example for us to, I hope, consider and ponder this week. What aren't we doing that we could that would actually be an expression of our personal faith in the public sphere in a way that is non judgmental, but is very explicitly an act that commits us with conviction to make sure that we become witnesses to what we believe personally is the truth of God. And with that, I'll see you next week. Have a good week.